welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, it's always a pleasure to have you here as we uh, bring these programs to you on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., and our special edition of Tell Me Your Story, Wednesdays at 9 a.m. right here on this fine station. Our podcasts are, quite honestly, all over the place. Uh, we're at 40,500 40, listens since January 2018. As I've said before, and I'll say it again, I don't know what those numbers mean, but I'm just glad that you folks are listening uh, and sharing uh, these, these uh, podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeartRadio, Blueberry, and many other locations, as well as Amazon Music. And we're on YouTube. That's right. You can go to the YouTube channel, tell me your story, and you can watch these interviews as well as go to our guest's website. I'll be giving that to you shortly so that you can continue your evolutionary process. If you uh, resonate with what we're uh, doing here and vice versa, if it resonates with you and you'd like to support us financially, we would be grateful for any amount. And you can do that through PayPal. All you have to do is use the uh, email address richard at richarddugan.com. And any, contribu any contribution is welcome, any size, big or small. We will take energetic support as well. So I hope that uh, you can do that. And please participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. As we encourage you to go within, to spend time listening to that still, small voice in that quiet, peaceful, calm place where uh, you can spend some time uh, <clears throat> getting information, inspiration, guidance, uh, whatever it is that you need, answers for yourself, and we hope that you will do that. Our program today is going to, um, is going to originate from inside a box that we are going to try to work our way out of. That's right. We're going to try to get out of the box uh, with our guest here on the program, the box. It is an, an invitation to freedom from anxiety with Wendy Tamas Robbins. And Wendy, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to getting out of this box. Uh, it's along, <laughs> it's yeah. along the same uh, lines as the analogy of, of working outside the nine dots. Some people may be familiar with that, but I guess the box is a lot easier to, uh, to understand. And a lot of us are finding ourselves uh, very anxious uh, these days because we, even though, from my understanding, Wendy, we have always lived in uncertain times. There has never been a time in human history that was ever certain where we knew what was coming next because that's just the way life is, right? And yet, for some reason, and hopefully we can maybe define this a little bit, we are even more anxious about this, what is it, like a higher level of uncertainty? That it's like, but the constant in the universe is change, right? So true. Well said. Yes, we never knew. But I think we had um, been lulled into thinking we could predict on some level, really, what what was coming next, right? Um, but I think this really threw everybody for a loop, for sure. And 
we realize now that we never really had control over anything. So maybe it's even like you're saying, bigger than just not having control during the pandemic, but realizing that this is really the state that we're living in all the time, mm-hmm. even after this is over, right? Um, so yeah. that anxiety is a little deeper now. I, I can't say that I've been immune from it, but I certainly haven't felt it to the degree, to the degree that some people have for two reasons. Number one was I was fortunate enough to continue working uh, during the past 18, 19 months. And my wife was furloughed for eight weeks, but she went back to work. The other part of it, though, was that instead of looking at the, the negatives of all of this, what I could see was nothing but possibilities and opportunities some of which we didn't even know existed yet when it started. But that was my perspective that, okay, yeah, I get it. You got to do something that you don't like to do. And we've never done it before, which I was actually thrilled at because it meant, uh, as Einstein would say about insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, this time we decided to do something different that we had never done before uh, in these, this multitude of generations. And I thought, okay, it's going to be different. We may not, we don't know what it's going to be when we get out the other side. If, some people even say, if we get out the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, but look at the, the, the possibilities, the opportunities uh, that, that are going to open themselves up to us, like I said, that we don't even know exist. But I'm going to guess I'm in the minority and maybe a very, very tiny minority of people that the majority of people and I'm curious in terms of statistics if you have them uh, if the majority of people are feeling this anxiety and this I have heard the two go together uh, anxiety and depression and that that's our next epidemic yeah I think we are dealing with a mental um, illness mental health epidemic on the other side of this for sure that I don't know that we're really um, that people aren't really aware of or prepared to deal with for sure. I think the last um, the last study done by Express Scripts looking at the new prescriptions for anti-anxiety medication and depression um, medications at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, were troubling for sure, especially in the age group between 18 and 25 year olds. Um, I don't have the exact statistics. I don't want to get, I don't want to get them wrong, but um, if you Google it and um, it's also in one of my latest articles, but um, yeah, they have been troubling for sure. And I don't think that we have the resources really to deal with what we're going to see coming out of the pandemic. But, you know, what you said is really interesting around you maybe being in the minority around looking at this, maybe with a silver lining and that's the different levels of awareness, right? There's contracted awareness where we're only focused on fear and the obstacle and the problem, and then rising to that next level of awareness that is more, um, oh, excuse me, I think I said expanded. That's contracted awareness. Moving into more expanded awareness where you are right now and have been throughout the pandemic, where you see these obstacles more as opportunities, right, to grow and to maybe find new possibilities versus, um, and being more focused on hope versus fear. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, you know, in your, through your podcast and and other things, 
you can spread the word. <laughs> I'm not well, sure. It's... Well, we're trying. We're trying. Um, I have to say that uh, the duration of these periods uh, really has been elongated. Uh, and I'll, I'm going to go back to 2015, June of 2015, and having to do with the that particular presidential campaign that I have dubbed the campaign of victimhood. And it went on for a year and a half. And I just grew so weary of hearing the moaning and groaning and complaining by certain groups of people that the problems that we have are somebody else's fault. Then, of course, in 2019, we hear in late 2019 about this virus in China and thinking, oh, they'll, they'll get it under. It'll be fine. No, no big deal. And the next thing you know, by February of 2020, it's global. And the I have to say that is in spite of my optimism, uh, Wendy, I was starting to grow weary in June and July and August of 2020 of all the complaining. I mean, it wasn't that I, I didn't I didn't get it. I all right. I understand that you're not happy, but I can't handle hearing anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm turning off the news for especially the news. Mm. Uh, but even the people around me. You know, they, they, oh, the, the, the restaurants are going under and this and that. It's like, okay, I get that. But now it's time to start thinking of new ways of doing things. Again, those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, um, it just, it, it's, it's like, I, I get, so, I got so tired of it. And, I, I, but I can't shut people out. You know, I can't turn them off. Right. But you're right. You can focus on the problem or you can focus on the solution. Right. It depends on how you want to live your life and how you want to move forward through this. Do you want to continue to identify with that victim mentality? And that's just one of our saboteurs. Right. Everyone's got a victim inside of them based on how they grew up, their their own trauma, whatever they've been through. But it's whether or not you identify with that and step into that role or if you just see it you know, from a, a healthy distance and, um, and, you know, separate yourself from it, become the observer, understand where it's coming from and sort of move on to, yeah. to a bit of a higher level to get past that. Like you're saying, to focus more on the solution and the possibilities that this brings just another opportunity to grow. Yeah. In a way that we didn't anticipate, but to your point, when we started, we really never know when our next opportunity to grow is going to be or what it's going to look like. Yeah. I, I, I use uh, the wall. I use Wall Street and the Dow Jones as a prime example, uh, especially when it comes to talking about economists, you know, and it doesn't matter what the numbers are. I don't care how high they are. I don't care how low they are. Economists are never happy. And so I put out the question to them, what numbers would make you happy? Uh, and I'll find a way to make those for you because I'm tired of your complaining when they're so high. Oh, there's a correction coming. And when they're so low, oh, my God, there's a disaster coming economically like 2008 or the depression of the 30s, 1930s. Um, <laughs> I just sit here well, if go, they got what they wanted, right, which is less volatility, then they'd probably be out of a job. Yeah. So <laughs> it's kind of like a weatherman. It's like a meteorologist. Yeah, right? exactly. If it was sunny and clear skies all the time, you know, not not a lot of fun. Although right. I do have to say I do miss the weather patterns as a kid growing up and and uh, living in Arizona when we would get the Pacific storms that 
typically came and they swept across California and across the desert, came into Arizona, and this was in the wintertime. And they would drench us real good and move on. And then the next one would roll through maybe a week to 10 days later. Oh, I loved that. And now it's like you can't count on anything anymore. <laughs> We've uh, Here in California, you know, we're back in the in the uh, up to our eyeballs in drought, as it were. Um, and it's it's just it's amazing how I've said this uh, on the program many times, too, that if this planet were to hold a seminar for the rest of the universe uh, to teach them something, it would be in crisis management because we don't know how to prepare for these eventualities. We just don't. Uh, and, and it's not that we can't. We won't because we'd rather deal with the crisis when it, when it comes rather than preparing uh, for the possibility because uh, we, we could have averted these droughts if we had built the desaliniz desalinization plants and if we had collected the rainwater and if we'd done all of the things that were necessary down the road to prevent a drought. And that's just one example of one area. There are many others as well. In terms of someone's anxiety, in terms of someone's uh, feeling that, again, I think they go hand in hand, right? Depression and anxiety? Um, yes, at times. Is there any way in any in any form for us to prepare uh, for that possibility? Is there a, I don't know, a mantra, a kit, uh, a CD, a book? Uh, I mean, certainly we would encourage people to pick up a copy of your book, The Box. Um, yeah. But uh, what what can you offer us in the way of preparation not if but when anxiety strikes exactly because i think that you know the way that you say it i feel a bit justified in my anxiety right like that's i thought as a kid i could see all of these catastrophes potentially happening right and thinking well the the adults must have it all figured out mm -hmm. and they must be preparing they won't let anything happen to me i must be safe i just feel terribly unsafe mm -hmm. but i'm sure they've got it covered and then i became an adult and i realized no the adults really don't have it covered <laughs> <laughs> not at all like i was really justified in thinking that as a six-year-old we're just paying attention the people that are more anxious right we're mm -hmm. paying attention yeah so I think that that being said, the only way to prepare for that eventual emotional and mental state is to go within and find some sense of inner peace that you can tap back into, regardless of what's happening externally, because we can never control the external factors like, like we're saying. So the only thing we can control, which Dr. Wayne Dyer said, of course, many times is what's inside of us. So it's really how we react to those external factors that creates our own reality. Well, I have to say that when I saw my first wildfire puff of smoke here, when we first moved here to Santa Barbara, I was like a chicken with his head cut off. Now, it turns out that that fire was several hundred miles away in another county, but I could see the puff of smoke off in the distance. And of course, they were able to take care of it and it was fine. And then we've had one fire after another over the last 15 years. And the more fires we have, the less anxious and fearful I am, because now we do have a plan. We, we're, we're ready to pack things up, grab the animals and go. 
uh, now I don't I don't get fearful or anxious. I get angry at the stupidity of the individual who started that fire, assuming that's who started it, as opposed to, say, a lightning strike, uh, because you can't control those. Mm -hmm. But also, I have to also acknowledge the fact that I live in the wilderness, you know, like a nut nutcase. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to move to Tornado Alley, where I'll never see another fire again. That may be true, but you better not live in a mobile home. And if you're going to live somewhere, you better live underground. Um, same thing in Hurricane Alley, if you will, or wherever these regular disasters take place. It's like, you know what? If I was an insurance company, I would not reinsure you because you're choosing to move right back into the line of fire. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. By the same token, where are you going to live where there aren't going to be disasters? I mean, there's no place mm -hmm. else to go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's. You know, you're, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Your experience with anxiety, crippling anxiety, is the motivation behind this book, The Box. Am I, am I correct in that? Very much so. Tell yes. me about that and how, you know, you just mentioned, of course, I, I love uh, the, my, my response to what you said about uh, being a six-year-old and thinking that the adults have it all set up is, don't! Um, <laughs> when, when did your anxiety become crippling? Uh, I think the first time it became crippling was the fifth grade. Um, so young, um, obviously that was the first time I had so much anxiety that it became like a dissociative episode for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was a bit of a depression, um, obviously undiagnosed and very difficult to concentrate for several weeks, mm -hmm. um, just lost in these anxious thoughts um, that um, I just couldn't unwrap myself out of it. And so, but ultimately I did. And, you know, over time, I guess my next one where it was severely debilitating was calling a suicide hotline when I was a sophomore at an Ivy League college. And the first time I thought I had really gained, you know, the ultimate success, whatever I considered that to be. Um, and that would have sort of a, that would be a pattern over time that um, similar to thinking the adults have it all put together. I was like, well, if I, if I just have, the husband and the new job and I get out of debt and my life looks perfect, then I will feel perfect inside too. And every time I did that and achieved that next thing, I would get to a deeper level of rock bottom, essentially. It was all, all sort of um, almost uh, achieving those things and yet waiting for the other shoe to drop when it all comes unglued, all comes mm -hmm. apart. Is that kind of where that anxiety was kind of stemming from? That it wouldn't last? Um, yeah, in part. Like, well, why don't I feel okay now? So what, you know, what's next? There was nothing left to um, to kind of be that, um, if only I get this, then I'll be okay. You know, there was never that next, once I achieved everything, it was that now what? What will heal me now? Mm -hmm. And I was always looking for that external thing to heal me or give me peace. But it wasn't until I turned to the internal state, right? And sort of found my way back home to that inner peace that I realized that that was the only way to get there. 
Well, tell me about your inner life, if if that's all right, uh, in especially in terms of the, as I like to call it, the philosophy that you were raised with, uh, the the beliefs, uh, if you will, that you were raised with. Did any of those help? Um, they definitely helped me succeed. They did not help me um, find a way. And when I say succeed, I mean an external idea of what you know success is mm-hmm. um, an achievement. So um, I was I was motivated. I was driven because I was parented in a way that you know don't. Um, you know, don't give too much support or the child will stop trying that sort of, hmm. um, you know, kind of army. I don't, yeah. it, was, it wasn't really from an army family, but it's kind of like that mentality that, you know, post-World War II, like, um, yeah. And, but internally we didn't really, <clears throat> excuse me, we didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't, we didn't recognize things that were going on because so my mother had untreated mental health issues, which created a very volatile home life at times. It was very chaotic. And so I never as a child really knew what to expect, knew when that next episode would happen. And so I became very hyper vigilant and, um, you know, over time that just, for me, I had to create a safe place and protect myself from that. So um, I guess that that parenting, that um, not talking about what we all saw was happening, and then we would just sort of push it under the rug mm. and not really address it. I think that when my own internal life started to unravel, I knew not to discuss it. I knew that there should be shame involved in that. I knew that I needed to use my motivation, my determination to push that away and hide it and get over it, you know, not ask for help. So I think that it was, it definitely um, fed into where I ended up. Well, I know that in my life, um, I think that there was a certain amount of that even in my life. Uh, but at the same time, I was also taught that if you need help, ask for it. There's nothing wrong with that. If, if something doesn't click for you, like especially, let's say, at work, uh, you're trying to learn a new task. Don't, don't try to fumble through it if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, then ask for some, some guidance. And, and so I would do that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I still do that to this day, in spite of all of the experiences, experience that I have after over 40 years in this business, I still go to chief engineers who've been doing this maybe as long as I have and saying, hey, um, I'm trying to accomplish this, that or the other thing. And a lot of times it's, oh, so that's how it works. It's so simple. <laughs> yeah. I do find that the, the older I get, the more experienced I get, the more confident and comfortable I am with asking for help or asking. I mean, I'm a lawyer by day and now I'm just not afraid. I used to think, oh, I, I must not know that because I'm not smart enough or experienced enough or so I would never verbalize that to anyone. But now the first thing I will say is, does that really say that? Is that really the intention here is, you know, what did you mean by that? What does this mean? And it's, I think it's, refreshing for people to hear that from somebody who, you know, they perceive to be experienced and knowledgeable. Yeah. Because, But that's got to be hard 
uh, especially as a woman, uh, you know, asking for help in what is traditionally, as a lawyer, as you say, is traditionally a man's world. And I know that that has changed considerably. I don't know what the percentages are these days, but still, I'm sure that that's that kind of weighs on you a little bit. Or do you even think of that? Does that even come into mind? No, it comes into mind every day. It's still an issue for mm. sure for women in this profession and in most professions, I think. And it was harder as a younger attorney, for sure, when I was struggling with mental illness, hiding that from everyone, because I already felt like I came in having to prove myself as a female attorney. And then to add that on top of it, it was always my mantra was don't give them any excuse, right, to question your ability or your intelligence or so to add that was another source of anxiety, frankly. Mm. We're talking with Wendy Tamas Robbins and uh, her website that you can uh, go to and we're going to be linked to it is Wendy Tamas Robbins. Dot com. I stand correct. No, that is correct. Wendy uh, Tamas uh, Robbins dot mm-hmm. com. And that's W-E-N-D-Y-T-A-M-I-S-R-O-B-B-I-N-S dot com. And uh, you can find out more about her, the work she does, as well as the book. The book is entitled The Box. And it is about an invitation to freedom from anxiety. Um In many conversations on this program, we talk about the various emotions that we as human beings have in a general sense. And sometimes my guests will talk about uh, the the ways to be free from fear and depression and anxiety and so forth. But is it really freedom from it or is it uh, a way to um, to better cope when anxiety becomes overwhelming because I know that these emotions that we have serve a purpose, but a lot of times we get stuck. Yeah. Um, I do think it's, for me, it's freedom because I'm not free from anxiety to your point, but it doesn't control me anymore. So when I think of being a prisoner in that box, I freed myself from that box. I'm on the other side of those walls but I still feel anxiety. I still have panic attacks. I'm just not afraid of them anymore. And I live my life in a completely different way, you know, not dictated by them and not identifying with my disorder. Hmm. You have uh, a meditation, Taming the Anxious Mind. Can Hmm. you give us a little insight into that? Yeah, that's uh, a great story. I, so when I was first thinking about, um, finding freedom, I was asking my doctors, my life coaches, you know, can somebody who's had almost 40 years of anxiety and panic disorders ever live a life where I'm not accommodating those disorders on a daily basis? And they all sort of said, I don't know, um, probably not, you know, you're managing just fine. Like just, you know, you have enough, what more could you want? But I knew there was a life on the other side of this for me, um, which was a, a, a very difficult internal struggle. So I was thinking about it and wanting to go on this quest and I kept thinking of the word quest. And so I Googled it, which is what everybody does, right? When they're obsessed with something and up came this course that was being given by Martha Beck and Deepak Chopra. And so I immediately signed up for the course. I got to do a live coaching call with Martha Beck, who is, um, you know, a well-known uh, best-selling author and 
uh, Oprah Winfrey's Oprah Winfrey's life coach. And I asked her the same question and she said, I don't know, but I have a good place for you to start. And she gave me this meditation and essentially I had never meditated and I had honestly, um, fired several psychiatrists for just suggesting that I meditate because I, I was like, you can't possibly know what's going on inside my head. If you think I can sit alone, alone with my thoughts for any period of time, it's just never going to happen. So Martha gave me this amazing meditation where you sit and you imagine an unbroken horse running in a stall as fast as it can. And you really immerse yourself, you know, you, you use all of your senses. You look at, you know, the horse, you hear the hooves pounding on the ground. You see the dust blowing up after his, um, after his hooves hit. And you just imagine everything that you can smell, see, touch, whatever. And she said, watch this horse run for as long as it takes until it tires and it stops. And so you know, for minutes a day, I would build up five to seven to eight, to 10 minutes a day. And I sat there for about three weeks until that horse ultimately stopped. And what it was, was symbolic of my racing thoughts. So I didn't have to try and quiet my mind, which I knew was impossible at the time. I let those thoughts just run and run and run. And over time, I also, it gave me space to process all of this anxious emotion that I had, you know, bottled up in my body for so long. And it was really a cathartic emotional experience for me. And ultimately when it stopped, I had found this deep peace that had been, you know, hiding underneath all of those layers of anxiety for so long. And that was really the jumping off point for my meditation practice, which really um, was transformative for me in this journey. I would venture that that's something that uh, continues to this day and has actually probably um, been elongated as far as time is concerned. You spend more time uh, meditating than you used to because it is so helpful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's expanded. And I have so many different guided meditations that I love to share with uh, my coaching clients and um, during some of my programs and things like that, some around future selfing, which I love doing right now. Um, but and then I can sort of also sit now and just, you know, not have a guided meditation, like an active meditation, but just sit and really find that peaceful center and um, yeah, um, have it, you know, be as long as I need it to be because mm -hmm. it's so restorative. And I feel like I cross over into this very spiritual place that I feel so connected to the universe, to God, you know, whatever you identify with. Mm -hmm. um, it's yeah. really, it's almost like my church now. The Box is the title of the book. Wendy Tamis Robbins, my guest. It's an invitation <clears throat> to freedom from anxiety. And of course, a lot of what we're talking about is available at her website, wendytamisrobbins.com. Um, it is, uh, as we alluded to at the front of the program, maybe more than just alluded, <clears throat> that uh, this is a, a problem, if you will, or a challenge, shall we say, uh, that is going to face our society uh, on a global level. I don't think that this is exclusive to, to the U.S., is it? No, no. I know that the numbers are worse, um, like in the United States, in, in Australia, in Canada, um, um, for different reasons due to, um, you know, 
more affluent countries, I think, have higher levels of isolation and things like that, um, where, you know, they have so much kind of like the hierarchy of needs, you know, the more you have, the more isolated you can make yourself and the more your mental health suffers. Um, but it is definitely a global issue, especially after the pandemic, for sure. Yeah. And it is something that we do need to get a handle on because if we're suffering from these issues that interfere with our ability to function from day to day, what's going to happen to our society? What's going to happen to our educational system, our economic system, uh, our religious, if you will, institutions, and so on and so forth, if there are people who are running them who are, in essence, debilitated. I mean, isn't that kind of a fair word to use, uh, that anxiety debilitates people to the point where they really can't function well? And so they're not able to provide the kinds of products and services. I mean, I, I God forbid that this should wind up uh, with all kinds of recalls of products that are being manufactured and built by hand uh, by people who aren't really there. I mean, they're, they're trapped in their anxiety, and so they're not performing uh, the best quality work and, and so forth. Well, I would say yes and no, simply because I was an attorney during my debilitating anxiety, and I feel like I performed at a very high level okay. because of the anxiety. Um, it can make you very hypervigilant and very focused on detail. And, it, you know, it depends on what the mental illness really is. Right. So... Um, but I do, I would call it debilitating. I mean, I went from being um, an all-star athlete in high school and recruited and a division one athlete in college to not being able to walk through a supermarket without a cart holding me up. I could not even work out, you know, mm -hmm. so it can be not only mentally debilitating, but physically as well, which I think the book paints a really stark picture of that for people who've never suffered to understand the difference between, you know, we look at somebody like Naomi Osaka, who's recently in the news around pulling out of um, the French Open and Wimbledon because of her uh, clinical depression and people talking about performance anxiety or the pressures that we have as, you know, professional athletes and not really understanding the difference between clinical depression and pressure to perform at Wimbledon, you know, there's, there's, it's, they're very different. So I think it's important to bring that conversation um, to light more than we are now so that we can not only empathize with people who have mental illness, but understand what's really going on. And to your point, how debilitating it can be. Well, you know, we saw that documentary just this past weekend. Uh, and I, I, it was, it was as if, I'm sitting there and I'm watching this and I'm thinking, then get out because this is not really what you want to do and it's destroying you. Get out. And if I'm understanding the end of the documentary, she eventually did get out. She's now doing other things that are healthier for her uh, mentally, if you will. And, and, and I don't know if the anxiety and the depression have gone away per se or have been diminished. Uh, but it just seems, uh, but I, again, I also understand it's hard because you're, you're, you're in this bubble, this routine, if you will. And, you know, you don't know where to turn, you mm -hmm. know, and unless you have somebody who is there to, 
assist you, facilitate in this process. Uh, again, it all has to be your choice granted. I mean, it says as if, I mean, if you were, if you were feeling this anxiety because of being a lawyer, okay, uh, and I say, well, then, then stop being a lawyer. Find something else to do that, that makes you happy. But I also know, too, how difficult that can be, especially considering the, the investment in time and money uh, yeah. th that you put into something like that. You know, I, I understand that's not an easy thing to do, is it? No. And yeah, there's a few things there. So Naomi did not get out of tennis. She's actually in the Olympics right now and she's doing very well. So um, I think that we need to do better around what was really causing her depression mm -hmm. or, you know, um, I don't think it's coming. It, you know, she didn't want to be in front of the press. That's really where she was feeling um, that she couldn't take care of herself from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think she, she finds that she thrives on the court. Right. Um, I felt like I, I always thrived in that competitive athletic space as well, because a lot of our mental health issues are these very primal um, energy sources like anxiety. I felt like is like my wild child and it wants to be out there running and working and sweating. And I feel far more balanced when I have that in my life, but when I can't do it anymore because the mental health aspect is being challenged in some other way, then kind of the pieces fall apart, right? The wheels fall off the bus because there's no then physical outlet for all of this mental energy that now I have to bottle up because, and where, where does it go? What do I do with it? Um, so I think that as people who aren't suffering, which is part of my mission now is really to end the stigma around mental illness. I think that the people who are suffering don't always have the answers. Like Naomi didn't have the answer. Like, okay, so how can we deal with the press and the need for sponsors and all of this? Asking her is asking the wrong person. Like, I think we need to look at ourselves and say, how can we do better for people who are having mental health issues, are struggling with this aspect? Just because it's okay for everyone else or everyone else who's, you know, saying it's okay or maybe hiding their own struggles, it doesn't necessarily mean it's okay for everyone. And I talk about ways that we take care of each other. And even like in the tennis world, how they take care of people who have physical injuries, the amount of timeouts you can call on the court, the amount of time you get with the physio and all of that, and how they're just, we don't have that in place for mental illness because you're just supposed to suck it up and get over it and be able to deal with the pressure. Mm. Well, I, I, I'd have to say that uh, in one area of my life, uh, fortunately, it's not my career per se, um, I have, I think, what would be considered performance anxiety. And it, I think the frustration is that it's not, uh, that it is not understood by others. How is that even possible? As a guy, how could you have that problem? And it's like, well, let's see. Uh, yeah, I had my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s. I'm 61 now. I've changed. Uh, like you, I've grown up, you know. Uh, and I found more and more what's really important. So please don't ask me to perform, to achieve something. Can't I just, can't I just be in this situation, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the challenge that I face these days. 
uh, is is being asked to, I guess, really be someone I'm not. Mm-hmm. And, and I just don't want to go there. And it's really pissing people off, you know. But it's like, what am I supposed to do? And uh, how and I know that's just one aspect of anxiety, but but I think that's an important one, though. I think we should pause there for a second okay. because I think you're right. I think there's a moment where we abandon ourselves that creates anxiety, mm-hmm. right? We abandon what we know we truly need on a deep level. We abandon that that voice that's yeah. whispering inside because we long to be um, validated by someone else. We want to hear that big voice on the other end saying, yes, you're enough. Yes, I love you, even though God only knows what that truly means because it's based on them and their own issues and they can pick up and leave anytime they want. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think it's that break where we deny ourselves what, who we truly are, what we truly need. And then we're living for others and still not getting the validation that we long for. And I think that that's very anxiety inducing. Yeah. And that's, that's where I'm, uh, that's where I am at now. Um, and it's like, okay, work is an escape from that. I don't mm-hmm. have to perform in spite of the fact that that's what I'm kind of sort of doing here with you is this, it is sort of a performance on both our parts. That's true. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what you do in front of a court in a, in a courtroom. Uh, there's a certain aspect thereof, but you are, and I, we are choosing to perform. We're making that choice to express ourselves in the way that we are to get out the message that we want to get out. What is the message that you truly want to get out through this work and uh, the book, The Box, that's available through your website, wendytamisrobbins.com? Uh, I really want to give people hope that there's, um, that there is freedom from, from whatever they're feeling, whatever box they're in. You know, it's not only anxiety. I think that a lot of people can see themselves in this book, whether they are struggling with specifically with anxiety or depression um, or otherwise, that just based on the social norms that we've all grown up in, um, there are walls that we all build up to protect ourselves from whatever it may be, the shame we feel, vulnerable situations and so forth, that, you know, I think it's, the message is to identify those walls, recognize them, and think about what what caused you to put them up in the first place and what your life looks like on the other side. Mm-hmm. And then to do the work to dismantle those walls. What does that work look like? And is it worth it? You know, some, it, some people may decide it's not worth it and where they are right now is fine. But I think a lot of us feel like there is something calling us on the other side of those walls, a life that's waiting for us you know, to step into. Um, And also, like we were saying before, for people who have never really suffered, I think it offers a window into whatever your loved one is suffering with that you can't understand. And it's, you know, you're having a hard time empathizing with it. You're having a hard time even approaching the subject because you don't feel empowered in that space. You don't know how to help them. So that's not a motivating feeling, right? So I think that's a lot of times why people stay in the shadows because they don't think they'll be understood. They'll be told to deal with it or get over it on their own. So hopefully this book, like I said, gives that window into um, what 
a mental illness really looks like, even when somebody creates that picture perfect life and you would have no other way of knowing that they're really suffering. Hmm. It's, it is a, a, a difficult period for someone to go through. I'm curious as to um, if you can look back into your recent past or distant past uh, at times when you didn't feel anxious, you actually, you felt safe, you felt comfortable, you felt good, you felt happy, you know, it doesn't, and again, it doesn't matter how long it was. Have you had those, those times? Yeah, I would say uh, my four years of high school were very, very much like that. I was not anxious at all because all of my, um, my protections, my performance and, you know, my perfectionism, my, everything was firing on all cylinders. I was doing so well and I was so social and it was like, I was being stimulated in so many ways. And I was so exhausted from all of that, that there was really no room for it. Um, and my, I guess it was really to say my ego was, um, really running the show at that point and really, really stimulated. Um, so that definitely stands out. And then it would be my more recent past where, um, where I had done all of the work that I show in the book and gotten to that place with my current husband, where I can just build such an amazing connection with him. Um, having, done the same work with my mother before she passed four years ago after having, um, you know, um, having that trauma in my childhood with her, but having that relationship come full circle in such a beautiful way where there was forgiveness for both, both of our, you know, for each other and for ourselves. And, um, you know, all of that work just brought me to such a beautiful place that now I do feel, I feel safe within myself. You know, I feel, um, confident with myself, all of those things again are firing on all cylinders, but now they're coming from within. Whereas in high school, they were coming from these external, um, you know, getting A's and being an all-star athlete and all of that. It was, it was all of that reinforcement, positive reinforcement I was getting. Now, all of that comes from within. Now, um, when you, uh, I'm curious as to whether or not, aside from the book that you have put out here called The Box, An Invitation uh, to Freedom from Anxiety, um, do you ever, again, I know you're a lawyer, you're not a therapist, but do you meet, ever meet with people or connect with people uh, who then are going to ask you, okay, so where do I start? How do I how do I start to, to bring this, this anxiety level down so that I can, I can feel better about self? Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a coach and I do do um, work with people one-on-one -on -one and I start with a holistic approach because for me, as, as you saw in the book, um, it went from my diet to my, you know, my exercise routine to my inner work, whether it was looking back and looking for, you know, pain points and open wounds that I had not gone back and really healed or given forgiveness or built healthy boundaries around. Um, and then working on meditation and things like that. So I kind of hit it from the start from all different angles to figure out really 
where they're, like I said, sort of their, um, there can be work done, whether or not it's, um, like I said, nutrition or, you know, ways to reduce their anxiety immediately, but then also other ways to do it over the long term to have just that more peaceful center that they can start to cultivate. Hmm. Is, from your perspective, is meditation, uh, any form of meditation, uh, uh, one of the best, uh, maybe one of the better steps, if you will, that a person can take, and even if it's just for five minutes to get started. I think it is. Um, I really fought that idea for a long time, for decades, really, and I wish I hadn't. I wish I had started earlier, but it can be done in so many different forms, and so many people I still talk to are feel like a failure, right? The minute they start, they're like, well, isn't the whole point? I just asked somebody just a few days ago at lunch, I said, well, what do you think meditation is? And she said, well, sitting there with no thoughts, and then I'll have a thought, and I know that I failed, and so I just stop, and I don't go back. And so I really want to dispel that notion that 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 is not an achievable goal, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that is you have to move to Tibet and really study for 20 years if you're ever even going to start that process. So that's why I love to give people who are starting out active meditations, give your mind something to do, something to focus on walking to. So one of my clients, you know, I gave her the jungle, walk through the jungle to a waterfall and, and she changed it to her favorite hike that she does alone. And, you know, would hike that mountain in her meditation every morning. And just that alone gave her such, such a mindset shift for what the rest of her day looked like that I think, you know, it's not a one size fits all practice with meditation. There's definitely something for everyone. And I think it can be really transformative. Well, we encourage people to uh, begin that transformational process if they are suffering from anxiety. And even if you're not, uh, it can't hurt to sort of prepare yourself. The Box is the title of the book, and it is an invitation uh, to freedom from anxiety. WendyTamisRobbins.com is the website. We will be linked to your website, Wendy, so that people can uh, continue their, uh, as I like to call it, transformational and or evolutionary process, because that's really from my perspective, that's really kind of what it's all about, is that we are, we're trying to evolve. We're trying to raise our consciousness. We're trying to make this a better place for everybody. Uh, but it has to start with us. And it doesn't start with stuff. You know, uh, <laughs> it, that's, not, that's not the solution, is not more stuff. We've got more than enough stuff we can do without. Uh, I think that uh, if we spent that time in meditation, uh, that uh, we would learn that, uh, no, you don't need that. You don't need that. Yeah, I know you want it, but that isn't going to bring you happiness. That is not going to bring you peace, uh, you know, and so forth. Uh, and um, I have to tell you that there are those times when I do feel that that, pl- that place of safety from the anxiety um, you know, like at work or sometimes when I'm walking around, uh, we live on a, uh, we live on a piece of property that's about 10 acres and we occupy about an acre and a half with this little two room cottage that's out in the wilderness, as I mentioned earlier. And we see, uh, deer, uh, we see all kinds of different birds. So we'll see, uh, yes, rodents of, of various types, rats and mice. Uh, every once in a while, we will see, but not smell. But other times, we might smell, but not see a skunk. <laughs> mm. And so there's a lot of nature that we're able to take in. And it's wonderful to be able to do that. And I think that that's a great place. 
if people can get to a, a place of, of nature, even if it's a park in the middle of the city. I mean, my goodness, if you lived in New York, Central Park would be perfect, you know, because it's huge. And just find a spot and just sit there and, as I like to say, just be. Just be. You don't have to do anything. Just sit there and be who you are uh, and listen to that still small voice. Uh, and I have to say that that has been a main focus of our programs over the last year and a half, uh, both through 2020, the year of perfect vision, but then into the 2020s with the decade of perfect vision. And that's where you get that perfect vision is by going within. You know, I have 2080 in my right eye with a lens implant. I got better vision on the inside <laughs> than I do on the outside. Do you ever find yourself when you hear, when you listen to that voice uh, and it prompts you to do something that you, you know, no, I, no that's, that's, that, my plan is, the ego speaking, my plan is to do this. And you're telling me to do this and it's kind of contrary to, to what my goal is. And then you think, okay, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. And you find out that if you hadn't done it, things would have been a whole lot worse. Yes, for sure. Letting go of the life you think you should have to step into the life that's waiting for you yeah. is one of the biggest challenges, but it's one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned for sure. That, that's a great way to put it. That is a beautiful way to put it. Uh, say that one more time. Letting go of the life you thought you should have to step into the life that's waiting for you. Yeah. I don't think that can be attributed to me, though. Well, uh, I, that's fine, but you're the one that said it here on this program today, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll there give that go. to you for the moment. Uh, <laughs> the box we will give to you uh, because it's your book. It's an invitation uh, to um, freedom from anxiety, and uh, it's, it's something that we are going to be dealing with here in the coming months and years, um, not just in the States, but globally. And I think that uh, a lot of people are beginning to learn that, uh, and, and some in some instances, would you say maybe the hard way that, you know, all the stuff I've got is not, it's not doing it for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important what you're saying before about the stuff. I think it's who are you without all that stuff? You know, we need to have a strong sense of self, even with without any of it, you know, just strip it all away and understand who you are at that point. Um, so that when these things do befall you, whether it's mental illness or physical illness, you know, even identifying with your body is um, at times, a, you know, a pitfall. Who are you without, you know, your physical capabilities? There's still a strong self in there. Yeah. You know, uh, when we were evacuated uh, from our home and it was after 14 years or 12 years, I guess, 12 years. Uh, and it was the first fire that actually caused us to be evacuated from our home that we were renting. Um, after the anxiety of getting everybody together and shoving everybody into the Volvo <laughs> um, and, and getting out of off the property and heading down off of the mountain to Santa Barbara to find a place to stay. When that anxiety began to lift, I began to look at it as an adventure in that we were going to be staying, at least for, for several nights, uh, it turns out we stayed at three different hotels in Santa Barbara that we would have never stayed in if it weren't for the situation, right? 
And what made it a little nicer was I found out from my insurance company that all I have to do is keep my receipts and they'll reimburse us minus the deductible, which turned out <laughs> to be pretty good. Uh, and it turned into kind of a, I, I was actually having fun, even though I still had to go to work. My wife still had to go to work. Um, the animals were safe because they were in a shelter. And I guess that that was just part of my my uh, way of of looking at things is, yeah, I, know, I realize there's a fire burning. And yes, I realize that our place could be burned to the ground and we could lose everything that's in there. But what's important is that the animals are safe and that we are safe and that we have a network. How important is having a network when dealing with some of these issues that that many of us who many are listening are facing these days? I think the network is important if you have it. I think that even going back to work, you know, this re idea of reentry right now, um, I tell a lot of people um, in like my corporate wellness programs or to find somebody that they can confide in at work because it was such an anxiety inducing space for me when there was no one I could talk to, you know, when it becomes an unsafe place simply because you can't discuss your fears, your anxieties, whatever they may be. Mm -hmm. um, it just exacerbates the situation. So to have a network and especially somebody at work or somebody, you know, somebody that you're having a relationship with, being able to talk to them about it openly and not have that shame or that guilt around it or trying to protect them from your own mental illness. Um, I think that's really important. And I do go through that in the book, right? There's a stark difference between my first marriage and my second marriage and identifying the people in your life who are either lifting you, you know, help buoy you or kind of, you know, letting you, sort of fall below the water surface and see if you can get yourself back up again. Well, I talk about that even in my book, Choices, about uh, surrounding yourself uh, with uh, individuals who do just that, as well as all of your personal input, as I phrase it. Uh, what movies are you watching? What television programs? What music are you listening to? What books are you reading? What environments are you putting your in, putting you in? Uh, and I think what you're saying is absolutely right, that we do have, and this may be the wrong word to use, but we do have the freedom of discrimination in this context as we are speaking. That if it's somebody, I mean, I even uh, made the comment to my, my wife, who at that time was uh, had just divorced her husband, but he was still around. They were still, and they're still friends to this day. But when she was going through her cancer back in 2001, he would come in there and he would just talk about the negatives and the, the statistics and all this stuff. And I finally told her, I says, look, I'm not going to tell you to tell him not to come in here. But what I am going to tell you is that he's not helping. He's not helping you, you know, mm -hmm. and your emotional state. So you either, you know, you, I, you, know you, you need to do something because he's just bringing you down because that's the way she was when I would go visit her in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's really important. And, and there, the, the other part of it that you talked about, too, and I think this is important to, to discuss, and that is if you are part of the support group, shall we say, or the network, do everything you can not to judge. That's that's got to be huge. Mm hmm. Yeah. 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 It's um, 
immeasurable, really. I mean, because there is already so much shame with the stigma surrounding mental illness that your network has to be a safe place, right? Like just having that compassion and trying to help the other person have compassion for themselves rather than be critical. Like, how did I end up this way? Why can't I change? You know, why can't I control this? Just being that supportive ear, that shoulder that they can sort of just cry on, crash on whatever they need. And like you said, not just have it be a judgment-free zone. Um, And ask them to tell you one of the most important things my husband asked me, I remember at the beginning of our relationship, he said, just tell me everything that's going on in your head, no matter how crazy, quote unquote, it may sound. And that was such an invitation, you know, to expose these things that I was carrying that I felt like I needed to protect other people from. And he was saying, essentially, let me carry this load with you because it's too much for us to carry individually. Right. And that's what your support network is supposed to do for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and I've, I've dealt with that with my wife as well. You know, sometimes she will uh, make what I refer to as self-deprecating comments about herself. I say, you're not crazy. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just, those are your thoughts. Uh, mm-hmm. Any more than there's anything wrong with you because you like artichokes or you like yeah. something else or or you like this color or you like this type of dog. There's no, absolutely nothing wrong with you. These are just the things you like and mm-hmm. vice versa. There's nothing wrong with you for the things you don't like. They're mm-hmm. just the things you don't like. There's no judgment there. There's no condemnation, you know, and I think that creating that safe space Uh, That's really where you're coming from is creating that safe space for somebody who is suffering with anxiety. And I know that it comes and goes, you know, so, you know, you kind of have to be prepared as a member of that support group or network. Uh, But at the same time, if, if a person doesn't feel safe, I mean, your husband made you feel safe. Exactly. You know, right. Yeah. And, And I try to do the same thing with my wife. I try to make her feel safe and say, look, there's nothing wrong with you. And then from the very beginning of our relationship, she's struggled with the way other people see her. And right. and uh, I've said that's on them, not on you. OK, mm-hmm. you have to remember that. Uh, but yeah. she's also empathic and she picks up on the emotions, the emotional states of other people and didn't know for a long time that that's what it was and thought something was really wrong with her mm-hmm. until we finally figured it out. Because there was, there was nothing going on in our lives that would generate this emotion. It's got to be coming from somewhere else. And she just happens to be very connected and very tapped in to people emotionally. Uh, yeah. And uh, I know that there are a lot of other people like that. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, and there's no way to shut that off any more than there is a way to actually shut off the anxiety. Unless, like what you've just explained with your husband in particular, unless you have the opportunity to kind of... Uh, verbalizing it that that see that helps doesn't it to get it out absolutely it's such a huge part of it it whether you're journaling or talking to somebody else it absolutely because there's this voice inside that needs to be heard and if we're just thinking about it all of the time you know there's a lot of different voices so they're all cutting each other off and then none none of them are getting the microphone at any one point unless you pick up a pen and you start writing 
or you start talking to somebody and then you find all of these other things that were underneath all of those, you know, voices fighting for space that you never even knew existed, but start to make sense of it all, make sense of all of these um, emotions that you're having, um, things that you're having a hard time reconciling. How can I do this, but then feel this way and control that, but not be able to control this, you know? I think the more that you talk and the more that you write, it starts to, you know, it's like pulling a thread and you just keep pulling it and pulling it in this, what once looked like just this big knotted ball of twine starts to, um, starts to unravel in a good way. And you start to understand and make sense of it. Were there particular times of the day when you felt more anxious than others? Um, I will say that I know that women, um, their levels of cortisol, which is a stress hormone, are the highest in the morning. So the more I read and do research, I know a lot of women suffer with anxiety for upon waking. And there's a lot of talk about how to deal with that. But for me, because of the way I grew up, it was always right around dusk. And I still feel it. Once it starts to get dark, I would feel like um, very unsettled as if anything could happen in the dark. And so I always needed it quiet. I didn't like music playing. I wanted all the windows closed. I wanted all the doors locked, um, you know, really creating that physical safe space, make sure everyone was home and accounted for and, and calm. And so I still feel that rise up in me even to this day because it's it was such a childhood trigger for me. Um, but now that I understand where it came from, I just kind of, talk to that scared little girl and tell her she's fine and, and sort of move on and it dissipates. There are also people who are trying to create a safe space for themselves. And the only way that they can do that is to put on weight. That's another issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hiding with <laughs> hiding underneath all of those pounds, creating more space between you and the outside world. Yeah. yeah. That was an issue for me for a while. So there are lots of different, shall we call them, modalities for creating a safe space for us as individuals who are suffering from anxiety or fear or depression, what have you, that are mm -hmm. definitely not healthy. Uh, I would much rather use your methods, although I know that there are those who are strong advocates of using medication to, to help to alleviate. But something tells me that I, I understand that there can be uh, uh, imbalances in one's chemistry, in one's biology. I understand. I can get that, uh, which can be alleviated. I think more so through maybe the foods and things that we drink than than adding a chemical and continuing to eat and drink what we've been doing uh, eating. Yeah, I would. I would hope so. Um, I, you know, I would never tell somebody to come off their medication or. It worked for me at the very beginning when I really didn't know where to start. Um, but I think a big source of anxiety for me is needing a crutch because then I feel like if I don't have that crutch, then what happens? And for me, the medication became a crutch. And for others, it's just a necessity and they're going to need it perhaps for the rest of their lives. And I understand that subset. But yeah. um, to your point, I would rather take a more holistic approach and it was possible for me to do that. And, you know, taking another chemical gave me more anxiety than it relieved. 
So for decades, I would just hold on to the pill. It would be dissolving in my hand, you know, during meetings at the law firm or um, on a, put it in, I had one in every pocket in my ski jacket as I went up the lift. And, um, I, you know, at some point I just realized, well, I'm having more anxiety when I realize I don't have the pill in my pocket than if I just learned how to deal with the anxiety and move through it with none of these crutches. Mm. Moving through. That's interesting uh, that uh, you came to that that realization, because that's the only way we can get through a lot of our emotions is we've got to go through them. Yeah, processing um, and feeling rather than fearing negative emotion is so important. I think we're told as children that, you know, negative we're, we should be running away from or trying to avoid negative emotion. That's not the goal, right? The goal is to be happy all the time. And I think we do our children a great disservice if that's if that's what we teach them is 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 the you know, the goal. And I think it's far more important for us to teach them how to process that emotion and to sit with it. And, you know, I tried how many different ways to move around, turn around, run from it, you know, my anxiety for so long, but it wasn't until, as you're saying, I sat in that fire and understood and realized what was there when the flames went out, you know, that I was still alive and that I could really pass through it versus, um, turn around and run back from it. Hmm. We're talking with Wendy Tamis Robbins. She's the author of The Box, An Invitation to Freedom from Anxiety. Uh, and, and it's interesting how I remember, I, I, I did not, did not want to be associated with therapy back in my 30s. Um, I can figure this out. I've done enough interviews with people in these subjects. Uh, I've read enough books. I've been to enough self-improvement programs and all of that stuff. I, I'm a smart guy. I can figure this out. And I actually was convinced to go to a therapist uh, to deal with uh, some issues. And like you, I found not a real safe place with the therapist. Uh, because the therapist uh, referred uh, to me as having, and this, these are her words, character flaws. <laughs> A therapist telling the patient he has character flaws. Um, then criticized me. Right? Uh, what's that? <laughs> then you paid her, right? Uh, no, actually, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> I never have and I never will. Uh, because she didn't do anything for me. She did nothing more than belittle me. Uh, because when she asked me to list all of my friends, the majority of the names that came up were women's names. And she mm -hmm. thought there was something wrong with that. And so basically I, um, I left the fourth session and that was the last time I went. Because I just, I thought that's, I'm not saying that the therapist is supposed to be a, a yes person and on your side, but they're sure as hell not supposed to be tearing you down and making you feel like, uh, you know, making you feel worse than you already do because you're there for the therapy. You know, that didn't make any sense to me. So I said, bye-bye. But what is interesting to me is this whole aspect of a safe space. Uh, and that, to me, is so 
it just seems to me so important, and I'm hoping that people understand that and can help create that kind of safe space. I've got a lot of good friends that I talk with about a lot of different things, and it's always with the... And I do speak it sometimes, but sometimes it's unspoken that it's confidential. This is you and me. You're my therapist. We have the, uh, we have the uh, priest parishioner uh, uh, a seal <laughs> that, that this is not to be revealed to anybody, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in spite of the fact that I may talk to two or three different people just to get some different perspectives, you know, or at least some support in that regard. And... Um, I think that people need to do that, and I think that that you can be one of those people for some of our listeners. All they have to do is go to your website because they can get in contact with you. You're a coach. You're, you do speaking as well, and uh, and uh, you can be there to help them, if not directly, indirectly, through your book, The Box. And we are greatly appreciative of the fact that you've given us so much time to uh, to talk about this. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Wendy Tamas Robbins, the author of the book, The Box, An Invitation to Freedom from Anxiety. She's been my guest here on the program, Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And uh, we encourage you go to her, to go to her website, which we are linked to. Uh, as well as listen to the radio broadcasts on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. and our special edition on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. The podcasts are available not only on the homepage of richarddugan.com, but they are through SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, Amazon Music, as well as iHeartRadio. We also hope that uh, you enjoy these programs and you like what we're bringing to you. And if you are able to do so, we would greatly appreciate any financial support that you can give us through PayPal. We have a link on the website so that you can just click on it and then put in whatever amount that you'd like. We'd greatly appreciate whatever you can. We'll take energetic support, uh, good thoughts uh, uh, heading our way so that we can continue doing what we are doing here to uh, give people uh, the knowledge of uh, the new ways of living. They are out there, but uh, we have to create them. And it's obvious that the old ways don't work. All you have to do is look around. And uh, also participate in the decade of perfect vision. Spend that time meditating if that's what you want to do. Or just sitting still quietly, peacefully, and listening to that still small voice. Uh, And it will uh, give you the uh, guidance and the inspiration, the encouragement that you need uh, at any given moment during your day. I do have three final questions for you, and uh, I like to ask all of my guests these questions, and you may have answered them to some degree during the interview. I like to ask them directly. And the first of the three questions is, who is Wendy Tamas Robbins? Um, A seeker and a survivor. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? Um, Spreading more hope and peace. And finally, what is your life's purpose? To... 
reflect and reveal my true nature. Wendy, again, I thank you so much for giving us the time, and I encourage people to go to your website, Wendy Tamas Robbins, to find out more about you and the work you're doing, as well as to get a copy of your book, The Box. And we again thank you. Thank you so much. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. That's right. You can watch these programs, these interviews on YouTube, the Tell Me Your Story channel. That's where you can go on YouTube. We certainly hope that you will do so. Subscribe both to the podcast and the videocasts. And until our next broadcast podcast videocast, love to lull.